Before we get going with this week's episode, a word from our friends at Keeneland Racecourse. The fall meet is upon us, and it's one of the most important meets as we get closer and closer to the Breeders' Cup World Championships. Let's run through some of the key notes for the 2021 fall meet at Keeneland. The turf pick three. It's new for the fall meeting. $3 minimum wager follows the same rules as the traditional pick three with a 15% takeout. This is the first wager of its kind to be offered, and it appears as a separate event on wagering terminals and ADWs named the Keeneland Turf Pick 3. Keeneland Select, Keeneland's ADW service. They have a special bonus for wagers on Keeneland. New signups who wager $200 in the fall meet will receive $100 back into their account. Wager another $100 for a total of $300 in your first 30 days, and you receive another $100 back. In a nutshell, bet 300 on Keeneland's Fall Meet. As a new member, you get 200 back. The promo code is ITM21. For contest players, a couple of big events going on at Keeneland. The BCBC NHC event and the $400 Fall Challenge. Let's start off with the BCBC NHC contest. It will take place on Saturday, October the 16th. That is QE2 Day. Down at Keeneland, it's open to both in-person and remote participation. The $400 Fall Challenge is on Sunday, October the 17th, but it must be played in person. You need to be on-site at Keeneland in order to play. For all the details, head on over to keeneland.com racing wagering. Now, the guaranteed menu of wagers offered throughout the Keeneland meet. There are a number of guaranteed pick fours and pick fives over the course of the few weeks. Uh, Friday, October the 8th, there will be a $200,000 guaranteed pick four. Saturday, October the 9th, $300,000 guaranteed all-stakes pick five, $400,000 guaranteed all-stakes pick four. Friday, October the 15th, a $200,000 guaranteed pick four. Saturday, October the 16th, $300,000 guaranteed pick four. Friday, October the 22nd, a $200,000 guaranteed pick four. And Saturday, October the 23rd, a $300,000 guaranteed pick four. More wagers offered still to come. Breeders' Cup Challenge pick six. Cross-country wager between Keeneland and Naira. This will cover the six Breeders' Cup Challenge Series races at Keeneland and Belmont on Saturday the 9th and Sunday the 10th. That's this coming weekend. The Breeders' Cup Challenge Series races that are happening in New York and at Keeneland, they'll be part of a cross-country Breeders' Cup Challenge pick six. You're going to want to take note of that, obviously. And just the general notes, you've got 22 stakes races, 12 of them coming on the grass, and 10 Breeders' Cup Challenge Series winning your in events. It is the Keeneland Fall 2021 meeting, and it's something you certainly want to be involved with. Now, on to episode 85 of the show. What's happening? Welcome to the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. Today is Monday, October the 4th, 2021. This is episode 85 of the show. However you listen, thank you for doing so. Many ways to find the podcast. If you're audio only, you've got Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, InTheMoneyPodcast.com. If you're someone who likes to watch along, you can head on over to YouTube, search bar Matt Bernier Show. You'll get this episode along with the 84 prior. Nice episode here this afternoon. Going to sit down and chat with my buddy Dan Elman from the Daily Racing Forum. About a half hour, we go over predominantly two-year-olds 
than the races that we saw from this past weekend, including the Champagne, the Frisette, the American Pharaoh, the Chandelier. We even bring up the races from Churchill Downs from a couple weeks ago, the Iroquois as well as the Pocahontas. And we'll dive into the Breeders' Cup Classic. While that picture has changed a little bit with some of the performances that we have seen lately and what perhaps race shape looks like, we also obviously had to talk, very briefly anyway, about Tuesday night's showdown, the one-game playoff between his New York Yankees and my Boston Red Sox. And then we'll wrap things up with a look ahead to week five for the NFL with the 538 sort of forecast accuracy. A good week overall this week. Unfortunately, one game really sunk the ship. We'll dive into that later on. For this opening piece, though, knowing that Illman and I go over many of these races and some of the horses, I'm just going to throw out a few observations. We're going to keep it pretty tight. A few observations about some of the horses that we don't or we didn't touch on in the conversation. Also, some programming notes. Be sure to check out Horse Player Happy Hour this coming Thursday. Uh, we're going to be streaming Belmont Park. I'm going to do everything I can to be involved with the show, but but I am headed down to New York. Excuse me, New York. Headed down to Connecticut because I will be working from the studios in Stamford, Connecticut for NBC for the next week or so. We have... Breeders' Cup winning your in-action Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday, all from Keeneland. So I will be headed down there on Wednesday. Thursday's usually a day with rehearsals and things like that, and it'll be my first time at the desk, so I'm sure I'm going to have some other stuff that they're going to have to show me what's going on. So if I'm not there for happy hour, you will, I mean, you're going to upgrade anyway. It's going to be PTF and Michelle Yu. So be sure, if I can join along, I will, but you're getting an upgrade anyway with Michelle over me. You can check that out, Horse Player Happy Hour, on Thursday. It sounds like there's going to be another BCBC qualifier happening during that as well, so make sure you try to take advantage of that. We are down to the nitty-gritty. I still have not qualified. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. I'll certainly throw in a ticket, and hopefully I can uh, get lucky on Thursday if that does happen. But a happy hour, Horse Player Happy Hour. Be sure you get involved on Thursday afternoon. As I just said, I'll be down in Stamford. We've got racing from Keeneland all this weekend, and then Wednesday of the following week. Looking forward to that. And that's basically about it from a programming standpoint, just to kind of get you caught up. Next Monday's show, because I will be in a hotel, is more likely than not just audio, and it'll probably be pretty brief because relying on upload speeds in a hotel, not ideal for anybody that's ever had to do any of that sort of stuff. So likely to just be audio only, and I'll try to keep it relatively brief, and most of it will be going back and looking at what happened at Keeneland the weekend prior. So uh, that is a little bit of what's to come. Let's talk about some of these horses that Ilman and I don't dive into. Uh, One-timer, who won the speakeasy last Friday at Santa Anita. He only earned a 70 buyer, but I thought it was a really good performance. He is still unbeaten. He had paired up 80s in his first two starts. So this is a pretty significant regression. There's a part of me that is unsure that that makes a ton of sense because only two of the seven horses improved their figs. The other five all regressed. There was a five for a long turf race run two races prior, and they basically checked out spot on from a number standpoint from a, the final time. But as I'm sure anyone who is on social media has seen, uh, the timing issues have been rampant across the country, which still boggles my mind. I don't know how you can have all these technological advances, but we can't time animals running in an oval accurately. I don't. For the life of me, I can't figure it out. NASCAR can time cars down to the the one thousandths of a second or whatever it is, but, but we can't. We just can't time it. Period. 
mind-boggling, uh, just uh, embarrassing, really, but neither here nor there. Um, so the one-timer thing, who knows? Maybe he did really regress in a major, major way. doesn't seem like it would make a great deal of sense, but uh, he also had to probably run a little bit quicker early on than he's been accustomed to. Thought it was a good performance. I think he makes sense as far as a, a Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf Sprint is concerned. Uh, we already, we will, uh, already. Illman and I already talked about it. You'll hear about it more momentarily with the chandelier, the American Pharaoh, the champagne, the frisette. Um, the City of Hope Mile, Mo Forza wins, earns a 100. Very gutsy late finish. Thought it was really good. Red flags, red flags, red flags. Those of you who have listened to me long enough know why there are red flags, but especially so with a horse like this. Mo Forza changes leads at no point down the lane. Bad enough, but for a horse who has had a history of injury problems, red flags, red flags, red flags. Talent-wise, I have no question about his ability. I have no idea if he's sound enough. I don't even know if he'll get to the race, if I'm being honest. This is not a great sign, in my opinion, for a horse leading into the biggest race of his life. On the flip side, maybe he's been exposed that he's not as good as Mo Forza or Smooth Like Straight. But Hit the Road had a miserable trip. And for him to get as close as he did, he is now paired up 100 buyer speed figures off the layoff. Those are the two fastest races of his career. He needs to improve... But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility and at what could be a giant price, maybe hit the road is one to consider for a race like the Breeders' Cup Mile. Uh, those are some thoughts on the City of Hope Mile. The Santa Anita Sprint Championship. I've been on record saying Dr. Shivel or Shivel, however you want to pronounce it. I didn't love the Bing Crosby. I thought it was a slow race. You know, it didn't look all that good. I don't know what happened between then and now. That horse that won the Santa Anita Sprint Championship on Saturday with a 103 buyer, that's a legitimate sprinter. Now, is he good enough to beat Jackie's Warrior? Probably not. But knowing the horse is going to be a large price and knowing, all things considered, that he's not that far off. Yes, he's slower than Jackie's Warrior, but he's not miles behind. Dr. Shivel, or Dr. Shivel, however you want to pronounce it, he's, if you're looking for an alternative, he's at least mildly intriguing now. Visually, I thought that was fantastic. A far cry from that Bing Crosby, put it that way. I thought he looked really good, and that kind of effort, I think, at least makes him mildly intriguing going forward. And then I'll just do a quick overview of the classic preps, but Illman and I dive into this. Medina Spirit wins the Awesome again with a 107. Nixco wins the Lucas Classic with a 104. Art Collector wins the Woodward with a 107. All three of them do it in gate-to-wire fashion. Medina Spirit and Nixco, this could be setting the table for something that I didn't think was possible. For the longest time, you go back a few episodes, I brought up who's going to go with Nick's go early on? Who has the kind of gas early on? Who is not only fast enough early, but talented enough? That was the fast race that I've been waiting on from Medina Spirit. That shared belief I wasn't blown away with, although he never really looked like he was tested. This race here, he, he destroyed what may, may be a bit of a subpar group of older horses, but he destroyed them. He looked really good, and from a 107 buyer standpoint, with a horse who could potentially be fat, I don't think he's as fast naturally as Nick's go is, but I think he could at least be there. And if they know, or they believe, that he's a need-to-lead type, and it's going to be, we're making sure we make the front, then Nick's go and Joel, they're going to have to make a decision, because he's never passed anyone before. All of a sudden, those two, if they hook up early, maybe it's a two-speed number, or maybe they duel each other into the ground, set it up for a horse like Art Collector, a horse like Hot Rod Charlie, a horse like Essential Quality, or someone else. Maxfield, 
remarkably consistent, I don't know that he's good enough to win the Classic. And you'll hear, I bring it up with Dan, a, a possibility for what I would at least like to think. Because he's, he's rock solid. 105, 105, 103, 105. Those were his last four races from a buyer's speed figure standpoint. He's very fast. He's very good. I just don't know that he is of the upper echelon. But I've thought that for a while, and I'm not sold on the distance. So you'll hear what I think about him when Illman and I chop things up. We chop up these horses as well as the two-year-olds. So without further ado, let's roll it in to DRF's Dan Illman. All right, joined by the Daily Racing Forum's Dan Illman. He is the host of all of the videos that they put out over on their YouTube channel. Uh, I believe Out of the Gate is back, correct? It's back, but let's not push it too much. We've got other good stuff going on, Matt. Listen, out of the, I don't want to be pigeonholed as just an out-of-the-gate guy. It's a good show. Nice no, show. no. We've got a lot of other things. We've got doing DRFS bets. We've got other guys doing preview. We're very excited. We've got Aragona. we got Milkowski. Boy, what a, what a team. I was going to say, over on YouTube, the Daily Racing Forms YouTube channel, subscribe. Make sure you get the bell icon lit up so you get notified when the new content goes up for the boys down there in New York. Uh, first things first, good to see you again. I saw you up at Saratoga, but it's been a minute since you've been on the show. I appreciate you having me back. Uh, I know the ratings go up immediately when my face is here, and uh, that's why you give me a call. People always talk about it when we've had you on. So I think this is the third or fourth time I've had People say, well, again, I like how you, how you mentioned that you've always been very good as a politician. People talk, but you come on. Like, why did you I have get that tweets. bum on? Why did you have that bum on? No, I get tweets no. saying that they miss these days. That this is, and even when we were up at Saratoga, when I saw you on Travers Day, Dan Torgman, who I was doing the ABR live stream with, he said it. He goes, This is, I missed this when you and I were just, you know, talking nonsense back and forth for, you know, and that's the thing too. As, as good as the banter was with the videos, it was more the after show, the barroom banter back and forth. That's that's what would have sold the show. Well, we always wanted that to be a show. We figured that we were down at the perfect pint in New York City so long. Yeah. They, they would have no reason not to sponsor us. I mean, that was a show. That was DRF after dark. And they would put the races on for us. Well, which is stunning because I believe one time I went there without you, of course, and they refused. They said, we don't show horse racing here. They showed tennis from 10 years ago, McEnroe and Borg. That was our, that was one of one of our spots anyway, was, was the, the pint. So a lot's happened since the last time we had you on and we're getting closer and closer to the Breeders Cup. So not only was I curious about your opinion on the classic, but I think this time of year, many people, especially folks who maybe they're not super comfortable trying to identify what a good young horse might look like compared to the established form of some of the older ones. You're as good as anyone identifying what a good two-year-old looks like. And on the heels of this past weekend and some of the other two-year-old racing we've seen, I just wanted to kind of, you know, rack your brain a little bit and see what your thoughts were. Let's start off in New York with the champagne and the frisette. We'll start with the boys race from Saturday. You know, I, I went into that very curious about Jack Christopher and his overall ability going forward. There's a part of me, I have a nagging feeling that is he just a precocious type that the pedigree isn't the, the flashiest thing you've ever seen. Or is he one of those horses that, I mean, we've seen with a uh, Jackie's warrior. He's far from the most, you know, re royally bred horse you've ever seen, but he's just a superstar. Um, what were your overall thoughts on Jack Christopher in that spot? I can't knock what Jack Christopher did in that race. Again, it was only his second lifetime star. Remember, th this is a horse. This was the typical buzz horse at Saratoga. There's one or two every single year. Oh, he's the next great horse. He shows up. He's odds on in his debut. He doesn't disappoint. He gets a fig. I kind of agree with you going into the champagne he had to prove he had to get the mile. 
because his pedigree is kind of all speed. What is he, a Munnings on top of a half hour's mare? He ran really well in the champagne. He's just a professional horse. And you can tell he's very mature for his age because he broke on top. And a lot of horses, you take him in hand the first quarter mile or so, they don't like, they'll fight. He not only liked it, he got to the outside. He sat off of Gunite, who was terrible, by the way, but is a pretty good horse. He blew by that horse turning for home and gave those horses no chance. Now, I'm not sure what he beat. You take away Gunite's win in the Hope Pool over an inside speed favoring track, and what do you got? Wit is a horse that still has yet to figure out the starting gate. And I'm just, even though he was kind of locked up in behind horses on the turn, I didn't love the way he finished. Command performance, I think, has potential. A lot of it. I wonder if it's too much too soon for the BC. Going the right way, but now he's got to prove he can go two turns. As always, as we always say, let price be your guide. Well, that was going to be sort of my next point in that race. You brought up Gunite, who was just dreadful. He, he really at no point looked like he was traveling all that well. And then he never changed leads. I don't know where you go with him from here. Hopefully you just put him away for a little while. Um, you brought up command performance. You brought up wit. Wit, I've, I've long thought he just gives off the vibe of a closing sprinter. I don't know how far he's going to want to go down the road. Uh, command performance to me is the complete opposite that I think he'll run 10 miles if you give him 10 miles. But to your point, I've seen some folks bring up the idea of the Breeders' Cup Juvenile as a maiden. We saw Good Magic win that race as a maiden a couple of years ago. As someone who loves the horse, I think this horse has a, an abundance of talent. I almost would rather a, a race like the Remsen, where you give him a little bit more time, give him another you know two months or so to just regroup and continue to grow, because I think he's a little bit of a goofball as well. Um, but at the same time, I can understand the allure, the thought of running in, in the Juvenile and you know, there's always that feeling of, well, what do you have to lose? I mean, what, if you were involved with the horse, what would your call be? Would you go to the Breeders' Cup or would you sort of pull back the reins a little bit? I'd run them in the juvenile, to be honest with you. I think the juvenile right now is a race where it looks like there's going to be a lot of gas up front. We'll talk about Corniche in a minute. Yep. He has speed. Jack Christopher obviously has a lot of, a, a lot of speed. Uh, this is a race that could set up very well for a horse that does seem to be slowly figuring the game out. Now, in his debut, he closed very, very well to finish second. It just seemed like that time of year at Saratoga, it was all speed. He rallied from way out of it. In this race, he made a very nice late run. I'm not worried about a maiden in a race like the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. These are all lightly raced horses. If he's got the fig, it's good enough for me. I think if he's doing well coming out of this race, you run him in the juvenile. And I think he's an interesting threat, especially if the pace is fast. He might be the best price in the race because people automatically shy away from maidens. You brought up Corniche, who won the American Pharaoh out at Santa Anita on Friday afternoon. 85 buyer. Uh, let's call it a step back from that debut when he earned a 98, if we're just calling it from a fig standpoint. Um, but I thought he looked really good out there. Now, granted, it wasn't the most electric pace we've ever seen or the most hotly contested one. And I do question a little bit of what ran in behind him in the same way that you did with Jack Christopher. Um, we'll talk about one of the horses in a moment that I was intrigued with, but Overall thoughts on Corniche. I mean, he's passed the two-turn test. We know he can run at Del Mar. He may not be the fastest going into it, but he's got Baffert in his corner, and, and he ticks a lot of boxes. The edge he has over Jack Christopher is, you've mentioned, he's got the win at Del Mar. He's got the win at two turns. And while he did regress from a buyer's standpoint, let's give him an extra point or two because he was stretching out a demanding three furlongs off that five and a half furlong debut win. He obviously has speed. He's obviously professional. He's obviously classy. Like you, I wonder what he was in against. Rockefeller's a nice horse. I think going in, and everyone did, Corniche was the big favorite in that race. He was supposed to best Rockefeller. He did. Oviat class, 
I wish that horse had a little bit more early speed. I know he might. I wonder if he's the one, you know, you kind of like these connections, Matt. Yeah. There's, there's this kind of connections thing, the whole Texas red and the jubilation yeah. and the jumping up and down and the things. Yeah. I don't like people that, 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 you know, like to pat themselves on the back after a big win because a pat on the back's a good six inches away from a kick in the tushy. You know what I mean? I hear you. But anyway, hear you. getting back to Oviat class. <laughs> Nice race, I thought he ran. He just fell too far behind in here. He's a horse that you might want to consider. But as for Corniche, no knocks against him. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if there is a hot pace waiting for him in the Breeders' Cup. But as of right now, I'd, I'd have to say he's probably one of the ones to beat, like buyer in the uh, American Pharaoh notwithstanding. Yeah, and you brought up Oviat Class. He's the sort of horse, not just because of And I brought it up last week on our happy hour with PTF, the idea of he reminds me of, of Texas Red, not just because of the connections, but the running style. He's not a horse that has a, a ton of natural early speed, but I think he'll run all day long. And I love the way that he finished. My concern would be, and I'm not even including the Breeders' Cup. I'm thinking down the road. Let's get into next year as a three-year-old. I don't think the distance is ever going to be a problem for him. It's a question of how good is he, but I'm always leery of those kind of horses campaigning in Southern California. He's always going to be up against it at Santa Anita. The good news, I think, if you are someone who believes in a horse like Oviat class, Keith DeSormo is not afraid to ship to a place like the fairgrounds. And I feel like a horse like that would really be able to take advantage of that stretch run where I know this year's race is for the most part held up from a pace standpoint, but you can't really compare year over year. We don't know what the dynamics of certain races will be. Point being, I think he's better suited for a track like the fairgrounds in New Orleans than he is at Santa Anita. That's always my concern with horses in Southern California that don't have that early gear that some of the Baffert runners typically do. Were you a little disappointed that he didn't get up for second over Papa Cap in that race? I mean, he had a full head of steam. Papa Cap was kind of chasing wide. He gave a good effort. He doesn't sort of strike me as being a Breeders' Cup type horse. Were you a little disappointed he didn't get up for second? Or were you saying he just had way too much to do and he was obviously moving fastest of all at the end? Well, a combination of the two. I do think Papa Cap's actually a, a little bit of an underrated horse. Mm. I think there's some talent there. His run in the Futurity draw a line through it, given the trip. He almost dumped Bravo right out of the gate, and he was stuck in behind runners. Uh, I think the difference for me, just comparing the two runs, the maiden score for Oviat Class and the American Pharaoh, was th that maiden score, the pace melted down. And I think it just really, everything set up perfectly for him. And maybe the American Pharaoh, things didn't totally go to his favor, from a pace dynamic standpoint, which again, we've talked about it from way back in the day, you're always at the mercy of pace and trip with horses who have no early foot. And I don't think he got the pace that he needed really to accentuate that late kick. He is the sort of horse though, that I'm hopeful down the road. And who knows, maybe there's an equipment experiment at some point where you try to put some blinkers on him. Cause I think, I think the finish is always going to be there. It's a matter of how far back are you starting compared to some of the better horses that you're going to run up against Interested in your thoughts on Major General, the horse that won that race at Churchill Downs for Todd. Now, if you look at his pure figs, boy, he's slow. Yeah. He's slow on the way in. But I did notice a maturity, a big improvement in maturity from start one to start two. And it looks like this horse has a little bit of guts, too. He likes a fight. Yeah, and that's just it. He, he feels like the ultimate sort of, I don't want to say overachiever, but he, he doesn't have the talent, in my opinion, that some of these other horses that we've already talked about do. But at the same time, if you get into a battle with him, I don't think he's going to give in. I think he wants to really kind of fight you every way. We talk about it, and I know we can be sort of, you know, stuck into the figs a little bit more so maybe than we should all the time. But boy, I look at him and go, he has so much to find between now and that first Saturday, or I guess first Friday in November at Del Mar, because 
some of the horses he's running against are going to have 10 to 15 point buyer edges. Even if they don't regress, he's going to have to jump up to even be in the same ballpark as them. And I just, again, the, the beautiful thing is you're probably going to get a price on him. He, you know, I can't imagine him being anything less than sort of a 15 to one shot in there. Um, so if you believe, I, I think he's definitely in with a chance. He may be another one that has a three-year-old with more experience. Maybe he continues to take steps forward from the, we talked a little bit about the boys so far, the girls, let's go back to New York on Sunday in the Frisette and the, the timing issues that Belmont Park has had notwithstanding. So we have to take the, the speed figures with a grain of salt because it seems like things continue to get screwed up somehow, which I, we can, you have people taking commercial trips to space, but you can't time a horse running around a, a, in an oval. Well, it's it's racing. I mean, what are we doing? we've been talking what? about that for 25 years. There's always going to be some sort of issue that's going to push someone's buttons. And I agree with you that they've got to get this correct. It, it's not hard. It's well, not hard. And, and, and especially if you just get the stopwatch out, especially if this game is so predicated on speed figures and accuracy. Right. If you don't have accurate figs, what do you have? You have nothing, but the good news with Echo Zulu is she already had a 90 buyer in the pocket when uh, she won the spin away. So we know she's fast. And if you just had the visual from the last race, the Frizzette, listen, she's a very, very good filly. She obviously has to pass the two-turn question. I have a feeling that unless if Hidden Connection is as good as she's looked in her last two starts, it could be Echo Zulu's for the taking. Although Hidden Connection, when she won her debut, what, a Colonial? Yep. And, and usually I look at those races and I'm like, I, I don't know. She's really good. Now, what do you do with her knowing that, yes, she she's already proven the two-turn test. No, not a problem for her. And that was a big stretch as well, three furlongs. Th- that was a very moderate pace in the Pocahontas. And she kicked away like a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm certainly not trying to, you know, cold water her. But the pace in the Breeders' Cup is, I would assume, going to be tenfold faster. It, if she has to rally from farther back and the dynamics change, does that concern you at all at a short price? I think it always concerns me at a short price, uh, asking them to do something that they've never done. Uh, plus, she's got to deal with the big ship, while, uh, as does Echo Zulu. Uh, I think Hidden Connection might have some more things working against her simply because I'm not sure she's going to be as used to a, what could be a very, very fast pace. But we're looking at Echo Zulu, we're looking at Hidden Connection. We talk about figs. Like these horses, they've, they've got fast races. They've got very visually impressive races. But I wonder if the juvenile Phillies comes down to race flow, sure. where there's going to be a hot pace. And I think we saw a very, very good filly last week in Southern California. Uh, I thought the D'Amato trained horse, uh, what, ain't easy? Yep. Very, very impressive. Uh, her debut, she broke like a shot. They took her back. Usually you don't see want to see your two-year-old sitting in behind horses in the career debut. She sat there like she'd been doing this for a long, long time. She got to the outside. She blew him away. Similar situation here. Loved what Rosario did. Joe Bravo gave her the rail. Shot right on through. No sweat. Stunned the Grace Adler, didn't perform up to snuff. But boy, I think we've got a little bit of a star. I think I think she, if she goes off at any kind of a price, she's the one you've got to be considering. Yeah, I mentioned it to PTF that to me, she was the most likely winner of that chandelier. Yeah. And for the reasons that you brought up, you don't typically see a first-time starter act the way that she did in that run down at Del Mar. Basically, it was the combination of what I thought was a visually appealing performance, but also an educational one. And I, I don't think that's a common thing to have the two of them married together for her to win the way that she did in the chandelier. You're right. The fig is a little light compared to hidden connection, certainly compared to echo Zulu. Or, um, but my concern is, or not my concern, my thought is going to be the two turn test, not a problem. Delmar, not a problem. 
She's shown that she can handle different sort of circumstances thrown her way. You brought up the professionalism with Jack Christopher. She has it in spades. I, I'm with you. I mean, I think she is a very compelling case for kind of going against the grain from a speed figure standpoint. For those of you that are just all in on figs, she's not going to look that appealing. I think for the folks who watch the tape, she's going to be one of the more intriguing candidates. And here, simply to your point, she's probably going to be a price. And I would urge everyone at home again, while figs are, you know, the way and the light, with these two-year-olds, we should treat them with several grains of salt simply because these horses are maturing each and every day. And we have seen horses improve by leaps and bounds from one star to another, sometimes as much as 10 to 12 points. So keep that in mind. Even if your horse going into a Breeders' Cup two-year-old race doesn't have the fig, if you feel they have the upside, if they've shown something, you might be onto something at a price. You mentioned a horse that we haven't seen run in a little while, but they're going to go right to the Breeders' Cup with him, and he'll kind of be the last two-year-old that we really dive into in Pinehurst. He's a fast horse. We know that. He's another Baffert. From a running style standpoint, he is one that figures to be forwardly placed in that race, especially given how sharp he's likely to be with the time off. I mean, isn't he kind of the wild card in the in the group? Because we know he's good, but he's been gone for so long. He's going to have a number of firsts that he's going to encounter in that Breeders' Cup Juvenile. And the fact that Baffert's going to run him in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, I think, is a gigantic thumbs up. Uh, I know a lot of folks are going to be worried. Okay, it's a layoff. Okay, he's stretching out. Okay, there's other speed in the race. I'm not worried about layoffs with Baffert. He knows what he's doing. This is a very, very compelling horse for the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Uh, I think Corniche is good, no, no doubt about it. I think Jack Christopher is good, but I think you, it's fair to have questions about either one of those two horses, which is why you might be interested in a horse like Oviat Class, who's going to be a much better price than Pinehurst, by the way. Uh, I'm going to be very curious to see how Pinehurst is training coming into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. I have a feeling we're going to see nothing but typical Baffert bullets. We talk about race shape a little bit. And, and before we let you go, we got to talk about the, the classic right now where it doesn't look like you've got a very deep division by any stretch of the imagination. But I think in recent weeks anyway, my concern for a long time was there was no speed in the race. It was going to be Nick's go by himself out there. And look, if he couldn't get a mile and a quarter, he couldn't get that. But he was going to have the lead. Now I'm not so sure that that's the case because Medina Spirit, who I was waiting for him to run a fast race. And he finally did. And say what you will about the field and the awesome again. He put the boots to some solid older horses. They're not good. They may not be superstars, but they were decent enough. And he did it in a way that I've long maintained. I'm curious your thoughts. I think he absolutely needs the lead. If that's the case, if that is the case, whether when first answer whether you believe that to be the case or not. But if it is, under what scenario is there going to be one or the other, Nick's go or Medina's spirit relinquishing the lead? Does it set up for some wicked duel and you have some horses that can take advantage? I believe he needs the lead, A. B, it's going to come down to post position, uh, I, I think, to determine ultimately who's going to the front. But I think that Bob Baffert is going to tell Johnny B, you take the track away from Nick's go. Just as what's-his-name did with Nick's go in the, what was it, the Saudi Cup? Yep. Yeah, it was and you, you take the track away from Nick's go and you make him beat you a different way. And if Medina Spirit isn't good enough, fine. I think Baffert has a lot of confidence in Medina Spirit. 
uh, I think he's going to be sending that horse. We're, for like, we're forgetting that Art Collector has got a good amount of early speed. We saw that in the Woodward. Uh, we forget that Hot Rod Charlie has a good amount of tactical speed. He's going to be forwardly placed on paper, and it sometimes doesn't play out on the track, which is what makes horse racing wonderful and frustrating at the same time. It should be a fast pace. So, okay, who's the closer? Well, is an essential quality, the most likely sort of stalker closer that can adapt to everything. He's not obviously the most interesting horse that we could talk about because he could very well be the favorite in this race, but he should get a great setup. What about Max Player? Max? I was going to ask you about Max Player. Yeah. Uh, now, it's interesting that his sort of improvement has coincided with him getting closer to the pace. And I don't know if that's what they want him to do in here, but we know a mile and a quarter isn't a problem. I have a feeling Asmussen might have something with this horse because you know he's going to be a decent price. Well, in the way that you've laid out sort of the pace scenario, and you're right, it's not as though Art Collector and Hot Rod Charlie are void of early foot. They can both, they've both been on the lead in a couple of their starts, and we just saw Art Collector win wire to wire, or gate to wire, I should say, in the Woodward with a 107 buyer. I, I'm starting to envision a scenario where Nick's go is forward. He goes. You've got Medina Spirit. You've got those two that we just spoke about right up there as well. Maybe not dueling, but I think they're going to be pushing things. And then I feel like you get that max player kind of position. And admittedly, from a fig standpoint, he's light. He's got a career best number of 102. But I, it's hard for me, as someone who is dubious going into the Jockey Club Gold Cup, to watch the way that in his two mile and a quarter races this year that he has finished. Yeah. He's finished. I, I can say with confidence the mile and a quarter won't be the thing that gets him beaten. And I don't know that I can say that about everyone else. And what do you do with Maxfield? I think everyone thought going into the Woodward, if he was going to win a grade one stakes race, it was going to be the Woodward. No disrespect to Art Collector, who's been in razor sharp form for Belmont. But it was a race. I, I don't like that they put the blinkers on him. I don't think he needed it. It seemed like he was aggressive with them pulling in behind horses. He just didn't look very comfortable for me. I thought that was a bad loss, even though he finished second. But he's the kind of horse that could get a setup as well. And maybe the rats like me will be deserting the ship. Now, am I, I don't want to say out of line, but I've, I've long thought that A, a mile and a quarter is not really his game, Maxfield. I think he is much more of a middle distance type. Um, he's rock solid. I mean, his last four races, he's earned buyers of 105, 105, 103, and 105. He's very consistent. I'm almost at a point now where if you're looking at it from a likely standpoint of trying to win, I think he's actually more likely to win a race like the dirt mile. And I know that sounds maybe a little out of left field because you've got life is good in there. You'll probably have silver state in there. You'll have a number of really talented horses, mind control. Yeah. But I I'm not convinced for me, that would almost be class relief and perhaps at a distance that may be better suited for him, specifically of the two-turn mile variety compared to, you know, a one-turn mile or a one-turn mile on an eighth like we saw on Saturday. I just, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, is, it, is there a forward move for him? Because I'm, I don't really know that there is. And if there's not, I have to assume it's going to take somewhere around a 110 to win the race, the Classic. I've been waiting for the forward move from Maxfield. I really liked Stephen Foster. I, I really was very impressed with that race. I was looking forward to seeing what he could do against Nixco in the uh, in the uh, in the race at Saratoga, the Jockey the Club, Whitney, yeah. the Whitney. Pardon me. And I, you know, he ran fine. He ran fine to be second that day. I guess he was a little bit wide on the back stretch and into the second turn. Uh, I was expecting finally him to show up in the in the uh, in the Jockey Club. Didn't have in the uh, Woodward. Pardon me. Didn't happen. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think I'm kind of just getting tired of his act, Maxfield. And maybe maybe that'll just put him into the winner's circle. I, he's going to get a good trip. But I'm kind of with you. I'm not sure about the mile and a quarter uh, for him. Is By My Standard still around? 
I don't know for certain. I, I look, I, I'm a fan of the horse. I think he's proven himself to be a grade one slash two type, um, yeah. one and a half. You know, he's or, honest, though, and, he, and he's going to get a setup if he runs in a race like this. He's a horse that if he happens to be showing up, because I have no idea where he's been, he looked good in a couple of his races at a mile earlier this year, yeah. which we thought were a little bit short for him. Maybe he's a sleeper somewhere in the Breeders' Cup picture. If I throw a couple of prices at you before we let you go for the classic, just and it's not necessarily yeah. a pick, but of these prices, which ones are kind of appetizing to you? Okay, uh, Nick's go is uh, five to two. What does that do for you? Ooh, listen, on numbers, on consistency, on connections, five to two is pretty good on pace scenario. And I believe the difficulty of him navigating a mile and a quarter, you can have him. Uh, essential quality at four. Now, these odds are also offered somewhere else. No, I have a feeling. Say. I had a feeling. I, yeah, I, I know. I, I had a feeling <laughs> that somewhere. Yeah, I'd take him at four. Four to one. I mean, I, I doesn't think, he I, feel like... He can adapt to anything. I think I think he can adapt to any pace scenario. I think he's very, very good. I think you have a lot of question marks with the older horses. Uh, four to one, I, I, I think is extremely fair. Seven on Hot Rod Charlie. I'm the worst guy to ask because I'm not a Hot Rod Charlie fan. Like and I do, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I have to ask because yeah. when I the minute I watched the replay of that race, I yeah. said, I, I, I mean, I, I against better horses, I can't back him based on that. Although we, although we have, I mean, listen, we've, we've seen horses like Gunrunner and others, you know, they, they, they did sustain their run when they, on their right lead all the way down to the wire and fine. His Prince Derby is very good. He runs fast races. Um, he has tactical speed. He's just a nice horse and seven to one might be a very good price for him. I, I, I'm just not a fan of him. Uh, I, I think that if he's going against the better olders and a horse like Essential Quality, who had his number in the Belmont. I mean, they both ran great, but essential quality carried way more ground than he didn't beat him on the square. I thought, uh, I, I think he's up against it. Seven to one, it's not bad price. I'm just going to take my natural inclination to fade him as I always do. And I'm usually wrong. And the, the final three that they're just in a little group of eight would be art collector, max player and Medina spirit. I mean, max player at eight to one doesn't entice me, but there's a, I, I don't see him being eight to one day of. I think he's probably closer to 15 given the, I mean, you have to factor in too. You, you got to, I mean, some of these horses are going to be closer to, to nine to five or two to one than they are going to be to four or six to one. Oh, right? sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, I eight to one on, on max player. I think you probably get more come the day of uh, if, you know, if you happen to take eight to one, I'm not sure I would take eight to one. Cause I still think that even though he's looked good going a mile and a quarter, he's done it against sort of inferior competition. No disrespect to Mystic guide. who's very, very good, but obviously got hurt during that race. Um, Medina spirit, eight to one pace scenario worries me, but boy, how's everyone going to feel? Well, when he goes wire to wire, I mean, it, it's pays the, yeah. $18. And all you hear is <laughs> in the winner's circle. Listen, what happens? I mean, obviously, horse racing Twitter just blows up. Well, is it in, isn't in reality that one of the likelier scenarios? The likely scenario is Gamine by 10. Um, yeah, sure okay. Uh, uh, why not Medina Spirit? Let's let's just take the two-year-old race. And, okay, it's either Pinehurst or Corniche. Yeah. And we'll just keep rolling. We'll just keep rolling. I, I mean, from a classic standpoint, in reality, if, if – if you have questions about how far Nick's go wants to go, or you have questions about his ability to pass anyone, like I do, I don't think he'd pass a parked car. 
Medina Spirit right to the front, and he has never lost when he has been able to make the lead. No, I, and, and the funny thing is, if you take all the controversy out, Medina Spirit would be the plucky little underdog. Oh, such a likable corner. No yeah. pedigree whatsoever, uh, yeah. just gutsy, has got speed, great story. Now it's not a great story, no matter what happens. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm just curious what happens if he wins. Um, I, I'll be hiding behind a table somewhere. There's going to be a riot. The good son of Protonico. Don't sleep on you know, Good, Spirit. good. Fletcher makes stallions. He, I tell you what. Fletcher Todd, makes stallions. Todd, Todd knows how to make a stallion. There's no two ways around that. And, and I think uh, I, I listened to uh, the, the stakes preview that you and Beer did for the champagne. And I love the way that you put it. It's like the old days. Todd's got three. Got three. And, 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 and I think, look, I think he's got a number of really nice young horses and, and hopefully they all turn into good three-year-olds next year. I've kept you for too long, but we have to acknowledge uh, 8.05 tomorrow night at Fenway Park, uh, New York Yankee baseball taking on the Boston Red Sox. It's a, it's a one-game winner-take-all. Um, Garrett Cole and your son, Nathan Avaldi, uh, who you smoked out Avaldi when he was still with the Marlins, I think, all those years ago. Um, not just a one-trick pony, not just a brilliant horse racing prognosticator, but also knows literature, foreign languages, film, history, geography, uh, et cetera. And, but yes, also, don't forget philosophy, also yeah. baseball. Yeah. I was uh, talking with some, some relatives down at uh, this wedding in New York this weekend, and we kind of said we would almost rather, if this was the scenario, that the game would be in Yankee Stadium as opposed to Fenway Park, but the way that the Yankees just tore through you know, last weekend. Uh, and to be fair, some of the better hitters for the Red Sox happen to be left-handed. And I think that would go a long way. I have a question for you. What version of JD are we going to get on Tuesday? The good version? Well, yeah, I think you need the good version. Well, they need, but no, I think you need the good version. Up? It's a very tough task for JD against Cole. Um, he's going to have to show he's worth the money. And you know, I'm JD's biggest fan. And I think that he's the guy that is going to have a plan going to the plate. There's one guy that actually has a plan. These sort of games comes down to who makes the stupidest mistake and loses yeah. it for the team. And let me, been a Yankee fan my whole life. I know the Yankees. This is the situation I told you about a long time ago. Bases loaded. One out. Tie game. Ninth inning. You have a guy on third base. Oh, yeah. Fly ball to right field. Aaron Judge makes the play for the second out. Here's the tag. Here's the play at the plate. It's a strike. And you're out by a mile, Kike Hernandez. And Sanchez except, drops the ball. And Sanchez, drops. Sanchez forgets the ball. He makes the tag, but he forgets the ball. And that could easily happen. Or Sanchez, thinking it's three outs, walks off the field. Judge fires it at home, and there's no one there to catch it. Could the number happen. of times you and I sat there saying, Gary Sanchez, and by the way, his hitting has dropped off precipitously as well. But yes. we sat now, there. He's obviously said, hitting three homeless now. But it's, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, right. yeah. Put him right. in the winner's right. circle. Right. But right. Right. watching him play, this was years ago when he first came up. You and I are sitting there going, he can't be your catcher long term. There's no way. He can't do it now. What's he going to be like as he gets older? It's, 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 it's a good problem, I guess, to have. I guess because Sanchez, you know, they have some good young catchers coming up, supposedly the Yankees. Getting back to this game, I'm going to ask you your keys to the game from each team. Give me one player to watch for the folks at home, and I will then give you my opinion but I'd like one for the Red Sox, one for the Yankees. Well, I mean, I think the best player the Red Sox have had since the deadline has been Kyle Schwarber. I mean, he's he is kind of, I think, as he goes, the team sort of goes. Um, and this is a bit of a cop-out, I guess, but it really boils down to what, what are we going to get from Evaldi? Because when he's on his game, 
Uh, he, he can shut a, a lineup like the Yankees down. I just don't know what kind of leash you're going to have. You know, Sale, I'm sure, is going to be ready to go out of the pen whenever that ends up happening. But I just, I don't know what we're going to get. Evaldi has had the ultimate highs and lows where when he's really good, I mean, he's arguably as good as you can find. But when he's off, I mean, things go sideways in a hurry. So, uh, Captain Obvious, the starting pitcher, needs to be good. But I, I would say Schwarber. Uh, I think for the Red Sox, I think a guy that seems to show up in these big games is Kike Hernandez. Yeah. And um, I think there's going to be a spot in this game where he's going to have an opportunity to do something. And he is a guy that I would be very afraid of uh, in the clutch. And I think with the Yankees, it starts and ends with DJ LeMahieu. And I know a lot of folks have been very disappointed with the season he's had, especially off of the giant contract Mm -hmm. that he signed. Uh, I think, though, that he's the kind of guy that could really start things off on the road. If he can get on base and make things happen, it gives the Yankees a lot of confidence. How do you feel about this being in Boston as opposed to New York? Does that make a difference to you? Other than, other than the obvious? No, advantage Boston. And I, and I know you're, you're worried about it because of what happened to the Yankees in, in Fenway Park. Uh, I think the law of averages are the really Yankees going to go in there and do it again. I, I, think, you have a, I think you have a big advantage uh, with the home field. Uh, and we'll see what happens uh, with, with the Yankees. I think it's going to probably come down to one play, though, where, you you know, it was a, either a daring base running move or just a silly mistake that maybe you won't even, you know, certainly not going to show up in the box score. A missed cutoff man, uh, booted play or a bobble. Uh, something like that's going to happen. I, I, I'm not sure this is going to be a 10-3 game for somebody. Hopefully it's just a good one that they uh, that it doesn't really come down to a complete bonehead play but <laughs> like, all well, right. well, i'm not saying buckner-esque <laughs> maybe something yeah, yeah. Subtle. uh anything good happening down at uh laurel has the main track now that they've gone through and it's been redone any anything that kind of stands out I- i'm very pleased that the main track so far has been kind of fair uh when they first put it in uh, all the horsemen were telling me that the works were very fast the track seemed to play fast i think that concerned them uh, it seems to be a lot fairer now. The horsemen are happy with it. The turf course, you know, is much, much better. Obviously, it's usable. And as long as they take it easy on the turf course, I think we're going to have a nice meet weather, uh, weather permitting. Dan Elman, always a pleasure. Thank you for giving us a little bit of time here to chop up the Breeders' Cup, the two-year-olds, the classic, all those sorts of things. And again, head on over to the YouTube channel for the Daily Racing Form. You can find all of their content over there. Uh, maybe we plan on a sort of uh, rehashing after post-Breeders' Cup sometime in there? Yeah, that works for me. We'll be celebrating the Yankees World Series victory, <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right, Elman, talk to you. All right, take it easy, bro. All right, let's roll through some NFL Week 5 predictions, forecast accuracy over on 538.com. You go through, you assign a probability to each game. At the end of the day, if you're right, you end up getting points towards your score. If you're wrong, you get points deducted from your score. This past week was a solid week with the exception of the disaster from the Tennessee Titans. Overall, down 2.1 points. Uh, eight and four, given the fact that there were a number of games that I had 50-50 right down the middle. Uh, those games included the Washington and Atlanta game, which ended up being a barn burner, 34-30. to I gave that a 50-50 shot. The Indianapolis-Miami game gave that a 50-50 shot. The Colts ended up winning. And I gave the Browns 
and Vikings game, a 50-50 shot. So I didn't win or lose anything based on those results. There's only one of those kind of games lined up for this Week 5 slate. Uh, but 8-4 and four headed into the Monday night game, a game in which I've got the Chargers with the slight edge. So let's hope to continue on with, I would say, overall some very positive results and some, some pretty accurate ones with the exception of the Jets game, which to illustrate how overzealous, and I think this is a good way to tie it in with horse racing as well, don't be overly confident. Unless you think there's reason to be, let's say with a horse, there's a, you think a horse should be one to five or two to five. They're, they're much more rare than maybe we would think. The, the actual reality of a one to five or a two to five shot. I screwed up here with the Titans and Jets game. It, it, this to me is more about the Titans having a major, major flaw than the Jets all of a sudden, you know, moving the right direction. But I had that as about a 95% probability for the Titans winning. They lose on what would have been otherwise, for, for me to only be down 2.1 points for the entire week of week four, to lose 65.2 points in that one game, um, it, you know, it just kind of shows that the rest of the week was very good, just a major, major blunder there. So you always want to be, I'm not saying don't be confident if you have reason to believe, and, and there's a couple of, of forecasts that I've got for week five that are very, very aggressive don't be afraid to go down that road, but at the same time, recognize that if you're wrong, you could be wrong in a major, major way. So let's roll through the week five slate. You've got some intriguing matchups in here. Um, I'm in a survivor pool. I'm sure many other folks are. It's a brutal week, I think, to try to identify, depending on who you've used so far to date. I mean, I've, I've burned through some pretty quality teams so far because I always feel like, let's just make sure that we move on. Don't try to get too cute and find, you know, a, a team that you think is going to be able to get it done and end up getting screwed over. I, this is a tough week, I think, coming up in week five to figure out who's actually got some advantageous situations presented for them. So let's start off with the Thursday night game, LA Rams at the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, the spread, the line is Seattle plus two and a half at home. I have Seattle winning 24 to 21 at home. Now, the other piece that I'm now comfortable enough to incorporate also when I'm throwing these things out, I have a few different ways of going through. So there's the metrics about how the score prediction comes about, but then I also have basically just a power ranking system. And it goes through and assigns numbers based on how good or not so good each team is. Then it also factors in home field and things like that. So that, to me, is a good way to also compare what the real spread is compared to maybe what my power ratings suggest a number should be, um, and then also comparing it to what the metrics suggest. So this is going to be one of those games that I have, based on the metrics, Seattle winning by three. They're two-and-a-half-point dogs at home, but my power ratings have the Rams as 6.15-point favorites. So that's kind of a weird position to be in. It would be a game that I wouldn't be opposed to taking a look at the money line, similar to what I did with the Seahawks last week against the 49ers. That felt like a must-win situation. They got the job done on the morning money line. I believe it was plus 130, somewhere thereabout. This would be one I'd at least consider a money line home dog situation for the Seahawks. Not because I don't believe in, in the Rams. I think the Rams are a top 10 team. But that division is just so so loaded with quality from top to bottom in those four. So um, we have Seattle winning 24-21 at home against the Rams on Thursday night. New York Jets at Atlanta Falcons. The spread is Atlanta minus 3.5. I have the Falcons winning 15-12. And based on the power ratings, I have the Falcons as 3.69 favorites. It kind of checks out all the numbers do. Um, 
Oh, and by the way, the Rams-Seahawks game, I have the Seahawks from a probability standpoint winning that game 58% of the time. I have the Falcons defeating the Jets at home 59% of the time. So that's where we land with that one. Philadelphia Eagles at the Carolina Panthers. The spread is minus four in favor of Carolina at home. I have the Panthers winning 27-16. to 16. That's an 11-point difference compared to the four-point line that's available right now. This is over from DraftKings. Um, the interesting thing for me, and again, it, it, it's in, if you can put together different things, and by no means am I suggesting my models or my my numbers are you know brilliant. There are people that go much more into the weeds with certain categories than than I do. I, but I've I'm pretty confident in what I've got together. Um, the power rating is Carolina minus eleven point five, so effectively eleven to twelve point favorites over the Eagles. When the metrics that I punch in and it comes out 27 to 16, an 11-point difference, it's basically spot on, and the spread is minus four, which I know is kind of a smelly line, but that's the sort of instance where I look at it and go, look at my two my two rating sort of methodologies. They're jiving. They're right together with one another, and it's a pretty substantial difference from what the spread is being offered. Maybe that's an opportunity to take advantage from a gambling standpoint. Uh, I have the... Panthers winning this game 82% of the time at home. Green Bay Packers at Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals are home dogs, catching three and a half points. I have this as a 21 to 21 tie based on the metrics. Now, from the power rating standpoint, the Bengals are actually pretty heavy favorites in here, uh, minus 7.23. So just over a touchdown favorite. I'm still not totally convinced that I want to go that far with Cincinnati. They had so much trouble with Jacksonville on Thursday night last week. Green Bay, I, I'm not sure that I'm all in on them, but it increasingly is looking like week one is a bit of a, a mirage, that they're much better than that. But they've got their own issues. So I'm calling that one right down the middle, 50-50. I don't want to have too much involved one way or the other. Um, it's just a game that I, I could see going either way. So basically... Another way of saying it is avoid it. That's at least how I'm approaching it. So 50-50 for me. Green Bay at Cincinnati. I've got a 21-21. New England Patriots at the Houston Texans. The Texans are 9.5 point underdogs at home. I have the Patriots winning 20-19. to Now, based on the power ratings, my power rating situation is actually much more in line with my metrics, my model, compared to the line being offered right now. The power ratings have the Texans as 2.57-point underdogs at home. And when you see that I've got the Patriots winning by one, those two numbers pretty much check out. But compared to the 9.5 that they're catching at home as a dog, the Texans, you know, I could certainly see someone being enticed to go that route. I think Houston's pretty poor, and I think New England, keep in mind, the, the metrics are using the results on hand. I think the Patriots are better than what some of the numbers would suggest. They have a bear of a time running the ball. That's Captain Obvious at this point. But they've got things moving the right direction. I'm going to stick with these numbers here. I'm not going to have anything too crazy one way or the other. This equates to a 53% chance of winning for the Patriots over the Texans on the road. I expect New England to win. But on the off chance that these numbers are spot on, which again, they're driving pretty well, um, I'm going to... Kind of tread lightly with that one, but we'll go with the Patriots 20 to 19 over the Texans in Houston. 53% chance of winning. Tennessee Titans at the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Jags are four point dogs at home. I, you know, I mentioned it talking about the, the, the Titans and Jets game. 
I think Tennessee's a flawed team. I don't think they're very good. But, and despite the fact that Jacksonville was pesky on Thursday night, I don't think they're very good either. Um, I have this as a two-point game. The power ratings have it as a 1.3-point difference with the Jaguars being a 1.3-point underdog at home. So, again, my model with the ratings kind of jive with one another. I think Tennessee wins this game 20-18, to 18, and it's a 56% chance of victory. Detroit Lions at Minnesota Vikings. The Vikings are 7.5-point favorites at home. I have them winning 29-17. to 17. That is actually on the rather conservative side compared to what the power rating would suggest. Uh, the power ratings have this as a 18.97 difference meaning the power ratings think the Vikings are nearly 19 points better than the Lions. I I think Minnesota's good. I don't know how good. We've seen this story before where they can lose games that they're not supposed to lose, very much like the Cowboys, who we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but I do think when push comes to shove, maybe they don't end up covering or scoring the sort of numbers that, that the model and the ratings suggest. You know, 12 points for the model, 19 points for the ratings. Um, maybe that 7.5-point spread is a little bit more on par. Uh, but I do think the Vikings win this game 73% of the time. I'm comfortable with that. Denver Broncos at the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers are one-point favorites. I think this could be a gross game, especially if Teddy doesn't play for the Broncos. And that doesn't seem like it's a very likely situation with the whole concussion thing. Um, I have Pittsburgh as gross as they have looked, and I don't think they're very good. Uh, I have Pittsburgh winning because, predominantly because of the home field, uh, 14 to 10. Uh, not the most intriguing game on paper. Um, the numbers don't totally jive. The ratings have the Steelers as 5.11 point underdogs against the Broncos, uh, but the model has the Steelers winning by four. So I'll stick with that. Pittsburgh winning 14 to 10 over Denver. That's a 55% chance of happening. Miami Dolphins at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Bucs are 10-point favorites at home. I have them winning 23-10. to From a rating standpoint, that makes sense as well because the ratings have the Bucs as 13.03-point favorites. And when I see that and I see that my model has a 13-point difference, I'm pretty much all in on that. I like the idea there. Um, based on those numbers, they would cover the 10 points. I have them winning Tampa Bay 90% of the time. New Orleans Saints at the Washington football team. This is a, a very intriguing one as well. The football team is one and a half point dogs at home against the Saints. Now, I brought up last week with that Saints-Giants game that I wasn't totally convinced that the Saints were what some of the numbers would suggest they were. And sure enough, they somehow cough it up to the Giants on the road. Having said that, Washington is a bit of a mess right now, and I know they scored a bunch of points in that shootout with Atlanta, but I'm not... I, I think New Orleans is better than Atlanta, in my opinion. Maybe not by leaps and bounds, but they're better. And maybe they don't win by 13. The power ratings I have have them favored by 8.99 points, um, but I do think they're considerably better than Washington, who they're having many of their own issues um, I'll go with the Saints 23-10 to 10 on the road against the Washington football team. That's an 88% chance of victory for the Saints. Chicago Bears at Las Vegas Raiders. Raiders minus 6. This game could change slightly based on the spreads with whatever happens on Monday night. Um, I have the Raiders winning 23-14 to 14 at home. That's a 9-point difference. The power ratings have the Raiders favored by 9.73 points. It's all checking out. Uh, I have them winning 77% of the time over the Bears. 
Cleveland Browns at Los Angeles Chargers. Chargers are one-point favorites. Another game that could change based on the Monday night result. Uh, I have the Chargers winning 18-15 to at home against Cleveland. That's pretty darn close to what the power ratings would suggest because they've got the Chargers, albeit underdogs based on that. They're only 1.49 point underdogs compared to the Browns, meaning they've got the two teams pretty darn close, my power ratings do. Um, I, I just... Cleveland is kind of a funny, a curious case because I don't want to say they beat the teams they're supposed to, and then when they've played some of the better teams, they can't quite get there. They're very close. They're very good. But I do wonder if you're really a a Super Bowl caliber team, I think you're supposed to win next week. My numbers have the Chargers winning 18-15. to 15. We'll see if that ends up shaking out. That's a 59% likelihood for me for the Chargers. Um, this game right here, the 49ers at the Cardinals, there is no line, I think probably because of the whole Garoppolo situation. If he's healthy, he's probably going to play. If he's not, it'll be Trey Lance. So that number's not out just yet because nobody knows. Um, regardless, I have the Cardinals winning 20-13 to 13 at home over the 49ers, which there's a massive discrepancy. I said it last week. I think the 49ers are kind of... I said it on, on producer Craig's pod, Odds on His Truth. I, I don't want to call them fraudulent, but I don't think they're as good as, as some folks have made them out to be. Based on the power ratings, power ratings have the Cardinals as 18.48 point favorites in here. That's a massive, massive number. I don't know that I'm fully all in on that piece, also remember, last year, Arizona and San Francisco played some absolute barn burners. I, I don't see any reason why that would be any different this time around. The Cardinals are still undefeated. San Francisco really needs the rebound after that loss to Seattle last week. Otherwise, they could find themselves in last in that NFC West. Um, I'm going to go with the 20-13 to 13 result for Arizona winning. That's a 68% chance of happening. New York Giants at the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys are seven-point favorites. They look like they're legit. I have the Cowboys winning 28-10 to 10 over the Giants. That checks out with the power ratings, which have the Cowboys as 17.03 point favorites. 90% of the time, I think the Dallas Cowboys win this game, so we're going to go that route. And let's see, the Sunday night game is, I think, far and away the best game of the week. It's the Buffalo Bills at the Kansas City Chiefs. The line is Kansas City minus 2.5. Now, the power ratings, my power ratings have the Bills as 10.63 point favorites on the road. Buffalo hasn't played any real quality, but they have, to me, they've been the most complete team so far. They're, we're going to find out how good they actually are on Sunday night against Kansas City. Kansas City has many, many issues. This is not the team from last year or the year before when they won the Super Bowl. They're turning the ball over a little bit more. They can't stop anyone. All these teams are running up and down the field on them. And when I say running, I mean, it's a combination of both run and pass. But basically, just offensively, they're marching. I think Buffalo is legit. And I know a lot of people were going through at the beginning of the year. They were kind of the trendy Super Bowl team for a pick. I mean, this will be, you'll find out really what they are. I think they are legitimate, but they're going to need to prove it against a better team. Maybe this is it at Arrowhead on Sunday night. I've got the Bills winning 30-27 to 27 as two-and-a-half-point underdogs. That checks out to a 60% probability. And the Monday night game next week, the Indianapolis Colts at the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens are favored by seven. I have them winning 20-14. to 14. 
Uh, the power ratings suggest that the Ravens are 10.01 point favorites, so even a little bit more aggressive than the number that I've got from the model standpoint. Um, but it checks out to a 66% chance of victory for the Ravens. There you have it. Some plays from Week 5. The upcoming week five in the NFL. Let me know what your thoughts are about the first four games of the season. Let me know what you think about the week five slate of games beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. There you have it. That'll do it for episode 85. However you've been listening, thank you for doing so. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to your pods. You can watch it over on YouTube. And please follow me on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Again, I'm headed down to Connecticut. Going to be in studio going over racing from Keeneland Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the following Wednesday. Long run down there. Got to have a number of shows. Great racing. Looking forward to getting down there. Join us on NBC and NBCSN throughout the week. Uh, and also, again, Horse Player Happy Hour coming up on Thursday. Be sure to support it because it's all helping out aftercare. And really, when all is said and done, that's the most important piece of any of the things that we do here within the Money Media. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to get you on your way. Thank you so much for listening. Best of luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. Until next Monday, this has been Episode 85 of the Matt Bernier Show.